This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. The national defense strategy really focuses us on near-peer competitors. The U.S. government, in fact, increased its contribution to WFP in order to assist. Everything that we do in space, a lot of it can be applied to our life on Earth. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business, and development. For a second year, CSIS and Smart Women Smart Power teamed up with the Kissinger Center for Global Affairs at Johns Hopkins SICE and PhD students from MIT to host the Future Strategy Forum. It's an initiative to connect scholars who research national security with its leading practitioners. This year's focus, the future of statecraft. Our keynote speaker was Ambassador Susan Rice, President Barack Obama's national security advisor and the former U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Dr. Kathleen Hicks, CSIS Senior Vice President, Kissinger Chair, and Director of the International Security Program, sat down with Ambassador Rice to conduct a follow-up conversation about the future of statecraft. Well, good afternoon. Thank you to everyone for um, your continuing participation today, and I'm especially delighted to welcome our keynote speaker, uh, Dr. Susan Rice, Ambassador Rice, has served as the National Security Advisor, the U.S. Permanent Representative to the United States of the United States to the United Nations, um, uh, an Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs. It's fair to say you know statecraft, the topic of today's um, conference, backwards and forwards, and you've served in, in every possible uh, role to, uh, to view it. You're also a distinguished visiting research fellow now at the School of International Service at American, and, and you are working on a book, you're mentoring students, um, and we're so thrilled to have you here to talk to us a little bit about your experiences, your thoughts on the state of U.S. statecraft, um, and some of the major issues that we've been tackling here in this conference. So um, thank you so much for your time. Well, thanks for having me, Kath. It's good to see you all. Thank you for being here. So um, I think it might be most interesting for folks to get a little more knowledge of your background and, and what brought you first into this realm of, of national security and international affairs and foreign policy that you've dedicated your life to. Um, can you talk a little bit about what drew you to World of Do you have an early memory of global issues grabbing you um, and, and becoming a passion for you? Well, I grew up here in Washington, D.C. This is where I was born and raised uh, in 1964, I'm afraid to admit. <laughs> and I grew up in a, an environment, in a family, in a context where all of the events uh, of the day were very much um, on my television screen, talked about at my dinner table, um, whether we're talking about the Civil Rights Movement, Vietnam, Watergate, later uh, issues like you know, the, the Cold War and the competition with the Soviet Union, arms control, the Iran hostage crisis, all of these were things that were um, the stuff of my childhood and my upbringing. My mother lived not far from here uh, on Massachusetts Avenue, right across the street from the Egyptian embassy. Mm. And you know, I was home on the day uh, that uh, Sadat walked out of the embassy uh, just having signed Camp David, and there were snipers on our roof guarding oh, wow. him to, uh, to protect him and to, to enable us to celebrate that extraordinary event. So I feel like I grew up steeped 
in policy issues, but for the longest time, I thought I'd find myself involved in domestic policy. Mm. I went to college at Stanford. I was a history major. Um, you know, I was there at a time when you know, Condi Rice was on the poli sci faculty and Alexander Dolan and all these great international relations folks, and I took none of their classes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I went um, to do my graduate work in Oxford. And when I left Stanford, my expectation was that I'd do two years in Oxford, and I'd come back, uh, and I'd go to law school. And I'd end up doing some kind of public interest law, mm -hmm. whether civil rights law or um, you know, public defense or something. Right. And, but I, I also figured that for the two years that I was in Oxford, thinking that I might one day want to become an elected official, forgetting that I was born and raised in Washington, D.C., right. and we have no voting representation. <laughs> uh, I decided to study international relations for two years and did my master's degree in IR. And when I was done with that, I sort of faced a, uh, a decision point. Do sure. I go to law school as planned, or do I stay on and do my doctorate in international relations? And I chose to stay on and do my doctorate just because I loved what I was studying and I was interested in my dissertation topic. And I was convinced by a wise person that at 25, when I finished my doctorate, I wouldn't be too old to go to law school if I still wanted to. Um, I didn't choose to go to law school, and there are some days when I think I miss my calling because I think maybe perhaps I should have been a litigator because I like arguing. <laughs> well, being a national security <laughs> advisor maybe not too different from sort of yeah, at least arbitration more, and negotiation. Exactly, so, yeah. exactly. But that's how I got into um, international relations. But even yeah. after getting my doctorate, it wasn't clear to me that that's where I was going to make my career. I went to McKinsey and Company yep. for a couple of years, a management consulting firm. And then I had the opportunity at the very beginning of the Clinton administration to come to Washington and work in the White House. And I actually had two offers, one to work on the newly established National Economic Council and the other on the National Security Council. And I wrestled with that and sort of did a eeny, meeny, miny, mo hmm. and chose national security. Hmm. And sort of one thing led to another. Amazing. Uh, you, backing up slightly, because it'll take us to that time um, in the Clinton administration, you had done your dissertation on Rhodesia. Had you developed a strong interest in Rhodesia in particular or African affairs? What brought you to that issue set? Well, interestingly, it happened because at Stanford, I got very involved in the campus anti-apartheid movement. Right. And that was a time, this is you know the, the mid-1980s, when uh, it was before Mandela was released, the, the, the violence was quite substantial in South Africa, and I was just very drawn to that issue as one of, you know, of equity, social justice, mm -hmm. uh, equality. And I got interested in Rhodesia because Rhodesia and its transition to Zimbabwe in 1980 had been at the time, unfortunately no longer so, a successful example of a transition from white minority rule to black majority rule. And I was interested in what one might learn from the experience mm -hmm. of the transition of Rhodesia Zimbabwe for South Africa's future. So that's how I got into it. But in a, in a manner that I couldn't have predicted when I started it, it, I got very deeply engrossed in it because I was lucky to be studying Zimbabwe in England, mm -hmm. where the, the critical players were present, where the resources and the archival material was was rich. I got yeah. to go down to Zimbabwe and do extensive field research. 
and, uh, and meet many of the protagonists and interview them. So there was just a lot of meat there right. that, um, that I found fascinating. So I wrote on the transition of Rhodesia to Zimbabwe. Um, and in fact, the implications of that transition for international peacekeeping, because as virtually nobody in the world knows, that period of time when the transition occurred was the only time the Commonwealth, the British Commonwealth, deployed a peacekeeping force to maintain security during the election period. A first and only attempt at peacekeeping, a successful case study, and one that also got me interested in issues related to the United Nations and, mm -hmm. and peacekeeping, which subsequently became a focus. Well, so fast forward then to the 1990s, the Clinton administration, and right where, where you left off, obviously the genocide in Rwanda, but one of a series of peacekeeping operations that the United States was engaged in in one form or another. Can you talk a little bit about your, your you know, what, what you brought into that as you were just commenting from what you knew academically and what, what the reality of the U.S. role during that period in the debates over is America the world's policeman um, and in specific how we can help uh, and where the limits are to our ability to help prevent things like genocide? Well, over the course of the eight years of the Clinton administration, I had three different jobs and so mm -hmm. three different vantage points on, um, on this broad set of issues. My first job during the first two years of the Clinton administration was at the NSC. Uh, my first job in government, I was director for international organizations and peacekeeping. And this was in the window from 1994 to early 1996 when we were dealing with Somalia, mm -hmm. Rwanda, Bosnia, Haiti, Cambodia, mm -hmm. all of these uh, complex operations. And then in February of um, 1996, I became the senior director for African Affairs on the NSC staff. So I ran the small Africa office at the NSC, um, where my focus was you know, on the continent broadly, um, and not just obviously on, on peacekeeping right. or security issues. I did that through the end of uh, President Clinton's first term and about six months into the second term. And then I went over to the State Department uh, and, and served the rest of the administration as Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs. So, you know, I saw right. all of these issues from different vantage points. And it was an interesting time, as you'll recall, where uh, there was a, uh, perhaps an over-optimistic sense both of the United States' uh, primacy in the world and therefore our ability to address or resolve almost any problem out there, which obviously was um, misplaced. And uh, I think also a, a moment of um, inflated expectations about the capacity of the United Nations um, to um, effectively address all of these conflict situations. And so one of the things we learned in those years were you know, that as important as American leadership is, as, as valuable as um, in certain carefully defined circumstances um, an American-led humani American humanitarian intervention can be, there are numerous pitfalls mm -hmm. and unanticipated consequences. And um, one has to have a much better sense than I think we did in the early 1990s of the risks and the costs mm -hmm. of uh, deploying American or international forces mm -hmm. into a very complicated country, for example, like Somalia. Right. 
Um, we also learned that as, even as we've tried to build up and, and um, strengthen the tools that the United Nations had for peacekeeping and conflict resolution, that, that you know, there was a great risk of um, overestimating their capacity and the political will to back their capacity. Um, and so in places like Rwanda and in Haiti and, um, and, and in Bosnia, um, we saw in real time uh, the practical limitations of what, um, what the international community can do even when its will is, is pretty strong. So many of those lessons and experiences, um, I think, not only informed U.S. policymaking more broadly, but informed my personal perspectives on, uh, on the use of force, uh, on the role of multilateralism, um, on uh, the, the risks and benefits of, uh, of humanitarian intervention. Mm -hmm. I should have also mentioned, by the way, there are cards on the table. We are going to take questions via the cards, so please, when you think of a question, write it on the card, put it on the edge of the table. There will be people who come around. Uh, staff will come around to pick those up. Um, so let's jump. It's eight years, but we're going to jump through it relatively quickly and talk a little bit about um, sort of the, the period in between, if you will, when you were in the think tank community, because so many of the folks here are living in this world where they're practitioners or they're scholars or they're somewhere in between. Talk a little bit about that experience of coming back out of government now and being in a place inside Washington that's designed to reflect on what's happening in the policy-making world and what you took away from that experience? Well, uh, okay, I will. Yeah. But <laughs> well, or talk about whatever you'd like <laughs> to talk about. <laughs> so I, I have my own sort of strong personal bias about the, the value and utility of life in the think tank world. Um, and it is personal, so I don't mean to suggest that it applies to others. But for me, um, just to back up and put things in a bit of context, mm -hmm. when I, um, in between serving as senior director uh, for African Affairs at the NSC and going to state to be assistant secretary, uh, I had my first child, um, our son. Um, so when I started at the State Department, I was the breastfeeding mother of a three-month-old mm -hmm. child. Um, and I worked all the way through the end of the uh, Clinton administration with a very little person in our household uh, for whom I was responsible, yet I was on the road a great deal of time in order to, uh, to deal with the job at hand. And so when I left the Clinton administration, first thing I wanted to do beside sleep uh, was you know, to be able to devote the kind of sustained attention mm -hmm. that I obviously wished I'd had to what was then my three-and-a-half-year-old son. So that was job one. And then job two, to the extent it was possible, was I wanted to have another kid. So those uh, intervening years, were otherwise known as the Bush years, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> were a very important window for me and mm -hmm. our family to, you know, to, to mm -hmm. grow and consolidate. So the think tank world for me was really the, a perfect landing point in that um, I had enormous freedom and flexibility. Um, I had a community of colleagues and scholars that helped you know, uh, 
refresh and, uh, and, and broaden my knowledge and experience. I had spent most of my professional career working on Africa and or UN issues. And to the extent that I had any ambition of coming back and serving again, I obviously had to have a broader set of experience and, and expertise because there were no more jobs mm -hmm. really to do in the realm of African affairs. Um, and so I also used the time that I had in the think tank world to delve into new uh, issues and new um, areas of the world. So uh, I spent time learning about and working on the Middle East and, mm -hmm. uh, on, and on Asia and deepening my knowledge of, of Europe, which was there, but, but a little more developed than the other areas, but yeah. not as much as it should be. Um, and so it was a real opportunity for me to grow both personally on the family side and intellectually and professionally. And I, so for that, it, I find, I, I believe the think tank world is extremely valuable. It's a time to regenerate intellectually and to push your knowledge. It is not a place, in my opinion, where one should expect to have any great influence over policymaking. Right. In my opinion, at least as a policymaker, truth be told, I can count on probably one, maybe two hands, the number of you know, think tank products that I had the time to digest in any meaningful way uh, when I was in government. Yeah. And to the extent that I read what other people thought I ought to think as a policymaker, it was on the editorial pages. Uh, if they yeah. wrote, you know, an op-ed, yeah. which was succinct and digestible uh, and readily available, mm -hmm. which is why I now like to write op-eds, because mm -hmm. not only because they're easy and quick, um, but because those are, you know, they're consumed. They, they're consumed. Yes. And right. so, I mean, I did very interesting research while I was at Brookings. I wrote a book on failed states and the implication of state weakness for U.S. national security. I did you know, a lot of stuff in mm -hmm. that realm. I wrote a ton of stuff over six years. But I had the benefit of not coming in with the illusion yeah. that I was educating policymakers. Right. I was educating myself. Yep. I was you know, working with colleagues. I was hopefully adding to the intellectual capital yep. more broadly. But um, the think tank world sometimes, I think, uh, likes to um, emphasize its policy impact. Mm -hmm. And I think to some extent that's overstated. And we had, a, I think I mentioned to you, mentoring lunches. And I know, I don't know if anyone's here from my lunch, but we had exactly this conversation. So it was, it was Did helpful people disagree you. with what I No, I think it was just a very similar, you know, a lot of it's about building your own intellectual capital and, and building out your knowledge base. And you, if you want to have impact in a policy way, it's really incumbent on you on the outside you have to realize the policymakers don't have the time and space to consume all that. So it's on you to find those avenues. And they're often indirect. Sometimes they're direct, like a consumed op-ed. Oftentimes they're more about talking to staff at a lower level yeah. and ideas bubble up and yeah. things like that. Anyway, I agree. I think, I think people have to be much more realistic. So um, let's fast forward then through the Bush years to uh, the Obama years. And you come into the US-UN job. Can you talk a little bit about, you've already reflected a little from the Clinton years experience, how you thought about the UN 
institutionally before you came into the job and how the job shaped you to whatever your view is now on the role of the UN and how the US ought to think of it? Well, it was interesting that you know, being a junior staffer on the NSC and working on UN issues in the early 90s where you know, there's all this churn and all mm -hmm. this um, optimism and lessons learned um, is one vantage point. Um, but you know, almost you know, 15 years later, much in the world has changed. We've had 9-11, we've had uh, the war on terrorism, uh, we've had a shift in the perceptions of United States leadership and decision making given how we got involved mm -hmm. in Iraq without UN authorization, et cetera. So I was coming into the UN at a, you know, obviously at a senior level and um, in a very different environment where on the one hand, Barack Obama's election and uh, his um, disposition in favor of trying to find effective collective solutions to global problems, you know, sort of opened a door to, the, or reopened a door to the United States in our leadership role, um, which was comparatively welcome. Um, and so I, I felt like I was, uh, I had in many ways a fertile field on which to play. Um, and, and an opportunity to redefine in some respects how the United States related to the United Nations. Um, and I think I did come with a, a degree of sobriety mm -hmm. about the United Nations limitations, uh, but also its utility. And um, you know, working for a president who um, wasn't a, a particular romantic about the United Nations. Mm -hmm. He thought it was important and we had to be actively engaged and shape the outcomes there. But he wasn't you know, a woolly-eyed mm -hmm. idealist or, or multilateralist for his own sake. He, he had really strong views about the UN's need to reform and, mm -hmm. and its management and, and, uh, and, and business practices. Um, you know, we walked into um, a Security Council where uh, you know, Russia and China were already well on their way to regular and, and mm -hmm. uh, unrelenting collaboration. Um, and where, as a result of the Iraq war experience um, and uh, some of the uh, predispositions of my predecessors, mm -hmm. you know, the United States was not necessarily uh, there to be embraced with open arms. We had to assert our way back into uh, our, our rightful leadership role. And so it was, it was a fascinating and I think very um, fortuitous time to get to serve up there. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, we, we were wrestling with all the issues that uh, you were familiar with from you know, North Korea to Iran to the many conflicts and crises in Africa um, the whole, the Middle East, the whole gamut of issues. And looking at it, looking back today, is it your, what's your sense of the trajectory for the UN in the current, you can name the trends you think are most relevant, but there are, but there are many underway that pull at that co coherence to the extent there, there really was coherence left, as you pointed out with the Russians and the Chinese routinely pulling away. 
what do you think the prospects are for the UN? What's the best approach if you think it's important to maintain? Well, I think you gotta, when you talk about the UN, it, it's easy to talk about it as if it's a monolith. Mm -hmm. Like people yeah. talk about Africa as if right. you know, 48 countries of sub-Saharan Africa, 53 countries on the continent, or 54 are uh, you know, all one. The, the UN is actually many different UNs, sure. right? There's the Security Council. Uh, which has its own very unique dynamics. There's the General Assembly where, you know, the United States has just one vote right. like everybody else. There's the UN agencies and the operational activities that they conduct, which are extremely um, important in so many respects. The work they do on refugees and for children and uh, for, you know, food security and you name it. Mm -hmm. The operational agencies are in many ways um, the most high-functioning portion right. of the system. And the, the Security Council, well, the General Assembly, I guess. I was about to say the Security Council is maybe the dis most dysfunctional part of the system. Uh, although you could, depending on the day, argue the General Assembly on certain things. But the expectations for the Security Council are high. Right. And that's where the great power frictions and the comparative efficacy of American leadership really make a difference. Mm -hmm. And what we're seeing now, just to narrow it back down to the Security Council, um, is uh, you know, a, a continued unholy alliance between Russia and China uh, that um, aims to selectively employ the rules of the, of the road in, in international law when it suits their purposes, um, but not necessarily at other points. Um, we have uh, a United States that has cast doubt on its commitment to the institution. And, uh, you know, it's been months since we've had uh, a confirmed permanent representative up there, and it's not clear when we will. Uh, and even when we did, you know, our stated approach was, you know, uh, we're taking names, and if you're not with us, you're against us. That was one of the most early statements that um, Ambassador Haley made which, in my experience, doesn't lend itself to bringing people onto our side and marshalling the votes that we need, either in the General Assembly uh, or in the Security Council, because there are going to be issues where we disagree with folks, and we're going to, you know, they, one might want to ex exert some measure of punishment, but on another issue, we're going to need them, and we mm -hmm. may be able to get them. And so it's far more nuanced than, um, I think sometimes we make it seem. Mm -hmm. So I think the Security Council is in for a continued period of very uneven uh, utility. What, what people see when they look at the news is all the times the Security Council failed, as we failed for, have failed for years on Syria, for example. Um, or, you, you know, you name an issue where the, the permanent members are uh, at odds. Ukraine is another good example. But most of the time, all the, the votes that happen almost, you know, on an almost daily, weekly basis end up being votes that are taken on the basis of consensus. Mm -hmm. And they don't get the attention that, um, uh, that the bus steps get. But on most issues, particularly issues related to Africa or issues you know, related to some of the less controversial parts of the world, that system still is functioning mm -hmm. um, and producing outcomes that are that are better than non-outcomes for the most part. 
and that's in part where, you know, on the day-to-day -day spade work of diplomacy, where the United States role is so critical. And I, uh, I look forward to uh, a confirmed ambassador who hopefully will have the chops and the skill and the, um, the weight uh, to advance our interests in the way they need to be up there. So I think I've described four careers already, and yet we haven't gotten to the last of your government positions, which is as the National Security Advisor. I remember that one. Um, yes, you were the National Security Advisor, as probably every National Security Advisor here is during a very challenging period. In your case, it was during the rise of ISIS, Russia invading Crimea, Chinese militarization of the land reclamation areas, Russia's election interference, that's the highlight reel I can think of. I'm sure you have many other There's more than that, but keep going. Examples. <laughs> I'm going to stop there. And again, hard to dig in. We don't want to be too retrospective because I don't want to I, I want to talk about the way ahead. But coming out of that experience, it would be great to hear um, the things substantively you're most proud of, the things where, if any, that you have regrets about. Um, and then maybe talk a little bit, we can do this as a second question, but just to get you thinking about it, about the process elements, if you will, the role of the National Security Advisor and how you looked at the job in either so order. So let's hold that second part yep. for your follow-up yep. question. Um, you listed a lot of the, the challenges that we faced, and those were indeed uh, a number of them, not a, not a uh, comprehensive not list. Not an exhaustive list. Yeah. Not an exhaustive list. But you asked what I'm most proud of, and uh, that's also a long list, um, and I won't give everything, but um, I would start with um, the uh, painstaking diplomacy that went into uh, consummating the nuclear deal with Iran, which I think, despite the fact that we have pulled out, uh, has demonstrably um, rolled back a very significant threat. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see if, um, despite our withdrawal and the reimposition of sanctions, um, that, uh, that deal can hold as it even has over the last year for another two years, uh, such that there may be an opportunity uh, to revisit uh, the U.S. role in it. But, you know, we had Iran uh, with, within two to three months of being able to produce the material for a nuclear weapon. Um, that has uh, been um, extended to beyond one year with the most robust and intrusive inspection regime in place. And all the pathways, plutonium, uranium, covert, uh, to a nuclear weapon um, undone. I'm very also uh, proud of another thing that uh, apparently our successors took a different view of, which is the Paris Climate Agreement uh, and the work that went into achieving that. I think people don't understand the, the, the long trajectory to, to get there, which really began with President Obama uh, storming a private meeting in Copenhagen in 2009 with a laptop and interrupting the Chinese and others as they were plotting to blow up the Copenhagen conference. Uh, and it extended through the U.S. Uh, reaching an understanding with China to, to play a leadership role uh, in crafting the Paris Agreement. And then 
um, some very painstaking um, diplomacy with India to try to bring India on board where it was balking at the last minute to accomplish the, the Paris Accord. And uh, again, uh, while uh, we have decided to subsequently absent ourselves, the world has gone on and that endures and while it's a far cry from where we need to get to, it's far ahead of where we would have been without it. And so um, I continue to be very proud of that. Um, I, I can go on, uh, the rebalance to Asia, uh, the effort to, um, uh, to stabilize uh, our relationship with China and find ways to cooperate even as we compete and push back on their behavior, um, strengthening our alliance relationships in Asia, TPP, our outreach to the Southeast Asian nations, um, our work on global health security, fighting uh, and rolling back the Ebola epidemic in 2014. Uh, which threatened to kill hundreds of thousands, um, and we were able to rally the international community to stem it, putting um, ISIS on the path to lasting defeat through a strategy that the Obama administration crafted and um, the uh, Trump administration continued to pursue, the opening to Cuba. I mean, I could go on, mm. but there are many things that I look back on uh, with, um, with gratification and that I think were particular hallmarks of what the United States can do when it leads others and brings, brings others along towards a goal that we prioritize and that we can convince the world that they share or mm -hmm. substantial portions of the world that they share. And um, we'll get to the future, but I think that's yeah. uh, a, a, a skill that seems to be less in use these days. Regrets or missed opportunities? Regrets, I mean, obviously, they're, they're, that's a list, too. Um, you know, I regret, for example, that we were unable to close Guantanamo, uh, even though we vastly shrunk the prison population there. Congress refused to allow us to, uh, to bring any of the remaining prisoners back to the United States to be incarcerated in maximum security facilities, and therefore, that last hardcore element that remains uh, which were under 60 uh, people, I believe, when we left, um, we couldn't accomplish that. Um, you know, I don't think anybody can look back on um, what has transpired in Syria over the last many years and not feel an enormous amount of regret. Certainly I do, but I, this is a longer conversation, but then you get into so all the what ifs, the what, what, ifs. Have, what have you done mm -hmm. this, what have you done that? Um, and uh, it's not clear to me what, uh, the right alternative answer would have been um, other than the path we took, which obviously was unsatisfactory, but the alternatives may have been more so. Um, you know, we, um, I, I'll give you one last regret, and again, not an exhaustive list. Um, I very much regret um, how our support for um, the Saudi coalition in Yemen has played out. Mm and how what began as an effort to help the Saudis defend themselves against Houthi attacks and Houthi um, uh, strongholds in Yemen has evolved into a U.S.-supported uh, humanitarian disaster. Role of the National Security Advisor. Can you talk a little bit about how you, um, did, were there examples that you looked to prior to you and how did you see the role? Um, and maybe more broadly, how do you think 
a national security advisor can be most effective? Well, the, the national security advisor plays multiple roles, right? Number one, uh, he or she is the principal advisor on these, the, the whole panoply of issues, diplomatic, political, economic, military, intelligence, even some law enforcement as it relates to national security, advisor to the president. So at the end of the day, the, the person in that role has to ultimately provide his or her best judgment to the president as to how to approach a given issue. Um, next and equally, uh, the National Security Advisor is responsible for ensuring that the national security decision-making process is optimized and that options and risks and benefits are carefully weighed and analyzed, that all of the agencies have a full and adequate voice and that their perspectives and uh, that of their uh, cabinet secretaries are fully and fairly reflected to the president with no spin on the ball. Um, so that we sit around a table and we wrestle uh, at you know, the working level, at the deputies level, at the principals level, and ultimately with the president, um, and deal with the, the toughest issues that the United States faces. And the, the National Security Advisor has to be trusted by his or her colleagues to run a, a process that is fair, that gives every participant the opportunity to be heard, uh, to influence the outcome, and to be um, treated as an equal when it comes to the, the inputs provided to the president. Um, and then thirdly, the National Security Advisor is responsible for a staff of, uh, when I left, about 350 um, people down from 400, I'm not quite sure where it is now, um, that are some of the most talented career experts across the interagency um, who bring enormous skill and experience uh, to their roles and enabling them to, uh, to contribute, to feel valued, to be supported, and to then, um, at their various levels, run an effective interagency process um, is also a critical uh, role that the NSC and the National Security Advisor plays. So it's, it's a, it's a multi-ring right. uh, circus. And then obviously also to, to a lesser extent than um, uh, the uh, Secretary of State or Secretary of, State of Defense or even the UN Ambassador, you do have a public-facing role as well. Mm -hmm. So um, I, you know, I, I feel really fortunate that I, my first job in government at 28 was beginning as an NSC staffer. Right. My last job in government uh, was as national security advisor, and I benefited as national security advisor from having served right. at both levels on the NSC staff. Right. Then having been an assistant secretary and therefore a backbencher at deputies and principals committee meetings when I was uh, at the State Department and seeing how that process worked and being part of the IPC, the, the mm -hmm. working group uh, policy-making process. And then being a principal at the table as UN ambassador and seeing how the National Security Advisor uh, ran the process in, and having views as to its relative strengths and weaknesses that I then brought to my role when it was, when it was my responsibility to chair the meetings. Yeah, that, I think that's really helpful, particularly for those who haven't lived didn't start at 28, if you will, on the NSC. You've seen it at every level. It's, it is really amazing how many aspects to the job there are. So 
with that broad perspective you've gained uh, over your career to date, let's talk a little bit about the state of diplomacy today. Um, the tools of diplomacy, I think, are something that are particularly worrisome to many people. Um, so the deconstruction, essentially, of the State Department being at the top of that list, but um, the relative imbalance I also hear a lot about between what is being funded in defense, my old world, and, and what's being funded elsewhere. What do you think the state of the toolkit is for the US today um, for statecraft? I'm looking for a polite term. Uh, poor. <laughs> um, I mean, you've hit on the, 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 the key point. Um, I'm deeply, deeply concerned about the health of the State Department and particularly the State Department workforce. Um, you know, there's long been a, a real and perceived imbalance between, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the relative heft of DOD and the relative heft of state. And, you know, it will be ever thus to a greater or lesser extent. But not in my memory have we seen um, what can only be assumed to be deliberate efforts to undermine uh, the very foundations of the State Department from a budgetary point of view, from a personnel point of view. Um, you know, some of the, the most experienced talent was deliberately driven out uh, early in the administration. There are, you know, still extraordinary number of vacancies in uh, important senior roles, not to mention ambassadorships in the field. Um, there was a, uh, an effort to punish and sideline uh, and drive out people who had served in previous administrations, which is almost everybody. And you know, what we have seen as a consequence is a hollowing out of the experience and talent of the State Department that is going to take years uh, maybe even decades uh, to reconstitute. Mm -hmm. And um, it may be among the most lasting consequences um, of, uh, of this era. Meanwhile, uh, you know, the attention to and interest in development activities and development tools um, are, and funding for them is, uh, is also on the chopping block. You know, I'm very much a believer that you know, to, to hearken back to a cliche that the three Ds of diplomacy development uh, and defense are in fact important uh, uh, legs of the same stool and you can't have them way out of balance. Um, and yet, I think that's where we are. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is that you know, we haven't seen, although there may be signs of uh, an awakening, Congress playing uh, a sufficiently robust role mm -hmm. in trying to write uh, these things. Fortunately, they have preserved much of the budget, right? Uh, and so that the, the the cuts that we've seen have been far less than would otherwise have been the case. We're seeing Congress now step in on issues like Yemen and, and Saudi Arabia and NATO, which I right. which I applaud. Um, but the, the larger challenge of the imbalance and the personnel issues, which Congress really can't um, and probably shouldn't be in a position to affect in normal times, uh, are areas where 
you know, uh, things are atrophying uh, before our eyes. So looking beyond the, the shores of the U.S. then, given that state of affairs in the U.S. with our tools, what are those trend lines that are most concerning to you? And there are, I'm sure, many, because regardless of what administration we're in, we're trained as security analysts to think about risk. So maybe just pick the top several that really strike you as um, most important for how they may be shaping the future we're living in. Well, I mean, I think the, the obvious ones are, are ones that have been longstanding and maybe simply gaining in, uh, in significance. Um, Russia's revanchism and their uh, renewed aggression um, in, in Europe and, and uh, the Middle East is obviously a, a, a significant trend. And China continues to flex its muscles, uh, both from a security and an economic point of view, and its um, its use of, uh, of technology and uh, unfair trading practices and the like is um, straining our collective ability to address and compete uh, effectively against it. Um, but obviously, you know, more recent trends that, uh, that are concerning, I think, involve the internal developments in Europe uh, and the health and stability of um, some of our most reliable partners from the UK to France to, to Italy. Um, those trends mm -hmm. uh, worry me. Um, I could go on, but I'll come to the trend that worries me most, um, which is the United States and what's going on here and with respect to our leadership role in the world. I think we are... Um, rapidly and I hope not irrevocably abdicating our traditional leadership role and ceasing to play the role that the world has long relied on us to play in terms of predictability, stability, um, uh, exporting more solutions than problems. Um, I think we are reversing that equation. Mm -hmm. And by questioning and undermining our alliance relationships in Europe and Asia, um, by engaging in um, reckless uh, trade conflicts, including with some of our closest neighbors and partners, um, by failing to concert our efforts to deal with problems like China and Russia, where um, you know, collective uh, counterweights are, are far more beneficial than any of us trying to deal with these problems in isolation. Um, these are all things that worry me enormously. And then I would add, you know, we are losing our moral leadership by refusing to stand up for our values, for democracy, for freedom of the press. Um, when we shield, uh, you know, behavior like the uh, assassination of Khashoggi and whitewash it, um, when we fail to speak out about what's happening in uh, places, you know, from the Philippines to, to Turkey. Mm -hmm. um, when we align ourselves with, you know, dictators like, uh, and, and, and laud dictators like Kim Jong-un and fail to uh, reinforce and support our allies uh, even when they need it most. We are upending uh, the foundations of, of strong and effective American 
leadership internationally, and I think the consequences of that are extraordinary. And um, they're, they're most concerning at a time when all of these other um, trends and trajectories, many of which are not new, are becoming um, even more challenging. Mm -hmm. um, this is the time for the United States uh, to be leading in a, in a far more effective way with the benefit of our partnerships and, and alliances rather than uh, sort of being uh, the, the, the bully that pulls up at the dinner table and, and yanks the, the tablecloth off and walks away. Uh, we're going to come to the audience questions in a moment. I'm going to ask one more question before I do that, which uh, links to this conversation. There has been, over many years, Americans have been concerned about issues of burden sharing, the role of alliances, entanglement is even inside our academic literature. Um, given where we are in the world, you've made clear the case for alliances and partnerships as a U.S. advantage. What, though, are the, should we continue essentially as we are? Are there prospects for reforming that you think makes sense for how we approach the issue of alliances and partnerships? Where should we be on this question? Because President, President Obama had his Atlantic article in which he expressed concern about allies. Obviously, President Trump has been very vocal on his views on allies and burden sharing. Well, it's, I, I, it's an issue. Well, I think that they shouldn't be confused. I mean, I, I can assure you that President Obama had no doubt about the importance and the necessity of, al of allies and partners uh, and spent you know, a great deal of time uh, trying to reinforce and reinvigorate our relationships, particularly with our treaty allies. Um, and yet, that doesn't mean that we don't want our allies to pull their weight, which is why President Obama in 2014 led the effort at NATO to get all of the partners to agree to increase their spending to 2% by 2024. That's the, right. that's the, that's 2%. the stick that yes. we keep beating everybody <laughs> with. Um, but it was, it was President Obama in 2014 who did the personal diplomacy, I remember him in long conversations on the phone with the Germans and the Canadians and, and, and various others to line up that will to make that commitment. Um, and you know, going back to Secretary Gates in, in the yes, Bush administration, right. yeah. and this has been a longstanding concern. The question is, how do you get there most effectively and do you get there through threats and bullying and transactional you know, uh, tactics wherein we suggest that we won't fulfill our alliance obligations if, you know, if people don't pay us back. That's the language we're using, by the way, which is, as you all know, doesn't make any sense. But uh, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be pushing and, and, and prodding our allies to do the right thing. I think the question is, how do we get there most effectively? And I think, uh, you know, I, I am dubious that the approach of publicly berating them and threatening not to uphold our alliance obligations and questioning the value of um, defending individual members of, of the alliance is the way to get there. Um, and then I think at even one point, the, the president, um, President Trump, uh, suggested that the right number was 4%. And now, 
before we were even uh, near to getting to 2%. So I think there's a, there's a real issue and a real challenge, but I think there's a question of how do we get there most effectively. Um, I do also think that you know it, it is this week on the 70th anniversary uh, of the founding of NATO, um, well and good that we ask ourselves how to refresh that alliance mm -hmm. for the challenges that we're going to face going forward. And already NATO has evolved in important ways. It's you know playing role in the Mediterranean and in counterterrorism, uh, in cybersecurity, and many other respects that one might not have envisioned 20 or 30 sure. years ago. And yet, the alliance is going to need to continue to evolve and grow to adapt to be as relevant as we need it to be for the challenges of the future. I think there's a lot of useful leadership that the United States could and should be providing in helping to define that way forward. Um, some of the questions here are about, in, in, you, know, you may well know, people often refer to this as a period of great power competition. I'm using air quotes because I'm not a fan. Um, but um, also it opens the question, and this came up in our first panel today, of opportunities, question mark, for cooperation across Russia, China, the U.S., which seem to be an ever-narrowing set of issues. Um, do you think there is the opportunity for cooperation? What do you think is most promising? Um, or even thinking about new dyads, if you will, of a great power and rising powers um, in order to get cooperation. So a suggestion here, for instance, is the U.S. and India. So thoughts on cooperation. Well, I, I mean, I think cooperation is essential. That it should be our aim to maximize effective cooperation on those issues that, which are almost every issue that the United States and, and no other individual country can tackle alone. Um, even as we compete and, um, and, and in many respects um, diverge with China, we have demonstrated our ability to cooperate with them, and I think we must continue to demonstrate an ability to cooperate with them, whether it's on you know, nuclear security or climate change or global health uh, or fentanyl, as we saw, to the administration's credit, a breakthrough today. Um, you know, the, there's a whole range of important issues where we can and we must um, find common ground with China. Even Russia, which has become far more complicated, as you all know, um, we even under Putin and with you know very fraught uh, uh, relations now, you know, we have been able in in recent years to to be able to find common ground, including on things like the Iran nuclear deal, uh, also on nuclear security, um, and and other issues. Um, and as much as I am. Uh, of the view that we need to be very clear-eyed and sober about Russia's intentions and their efforts to undermine our democracy and democracy in general. I wouldn't advocate for excluding opportunities for cooperation. I think we gotta, we gotta be able to walk and chew gum at the same time, push back forcefully on um, their threatening and, and um, abusive behavior. Um, but to the extent we can, leave the door open for cooperation where it's possible. Are there any areas that strike you with the Russians right now? I know it's hard. It's hard. Well, can I come back yeah, to Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, 
you mentioned earlier inflated expectations in, a, in the framework of what, how the 90s sort of presented themselves ultimately in your reflections upon it. Of course, that's during the time in which Secretary Albright spoke about the U.S. being an indispensable nation. Oh, so you're reading a card now. I am reading okay, a card. I'm sorry. Yeah, okay. yeah. Sorry, I'm not, not coming okay. from me. Um, so um, can you just talk about that mindset, if you will, and, and where you think we should be today on the spectrum, if you will, of indispensable nation to you know, not leading in the world community. What's the right way to frame how the U.S. should think of its aspirations? Well, I don't, uh, I don't know if the terminology is the most timely at the mm -hmm. moment, but the concept is correct, in my opinion, has been and remains. I mean, and we're seeing, as I was trying to argue, what happens when American leadership is, uh, is lacking. Mm -hmm. I think we are still in a, in a world where when the United States is playing an active and hands-on role, uh, we are more likely to see outcomes that benefit our interests and the interests of others more broadly. And when we are a disruptor or absent, uh, things get worse. And, and so I think we are still, uh, to use uh, Secretary Albright's term, in, in many ways indispensable. That doesn't mean we're the only country that matters. That doesn't mean that you know, we can do things alone and by ourselves. But it means that we are critical, and we are critical in our presence and we're critical in our absence. Mm -hmm. um, and um, when we are active and engaged, we do a much better job of protecting the American people and, um, and making the world a safer and more secure place and, and the opportunity for growth and prosperity uh, rises. We also have a number of questions here about your uh, sort of more on the, the personal career side. Um, one of which is to um, give some examples of how your academic training you think helped you in the policy roles that you had. Um, what I got out of my academic training that I think was most useful in, in policy making work. One, ability to write well. Um, I, I, this is a personal pet peeve of mine. I know there are a couple folks that I've worked with here who are in the audience, but you know, I don't think you can underestimate the necessity and utility of being able to craft well-conceived, coherent, well-punctuated arguments. <laughs> to inform decision making. So that was one thing. Uh -huh. And also the, the ability to digest large quantities of information and distill them down to their essence and um, you know, think critically such that one can formulate the questions and the, um, and the lines of inquiry that, that are the most um, fruitful to pursue in order to, you know, un to, to tackle an issue. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the, as many of you know, the, one of the hardest things about policy making is there's far more information than you, one can ever properly consume and digest. And yet, with all that information, there's also going to be a hell of a lot you don't know. So trying to figure out what you know, what you don't know, what you need to know, how to employ your time efficiently to 
you know, pursue things um, optimally, those are all skills that you learn, in, in my experience, uh, in, uh, in a high quality uh, academic environment. Um, and and this, the, so those skills of critical mm -hmm. thinking and distillation and uh, synthesis um, are vitally important. And then finally, the ability to um, argue a, a perspective or articulate a, um, a point of view succinctly uh, and persuasively matters enormously in policy making, mm -hmm. as you know. And you can, it's one thing to be at the table, it's another thing to have impact at the table. And it's very hard to have impact if people can't follow you or you're not, you know, uh, precise and, and effective in your presentation. presentation. How about the role of history for policymakers, use and misuse? Do you have thoughts you'd like to share on that? Well, as a history major, yes. uh, I'm a big believer in, in, the value of, in the value of knowing what's happened uh, and understanding it. I, 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 I'm baffled by the notion that we can make informed policy today without understanding what's been done in the past. And yet, it happens every day. <laughs> I think understanding history is absolutely critical. And you know, it's, obviously, nobody knows everything about it, everything. So, but you got to have that, you know, that desire to learn that the the mm -hmm. the, the, in, the historical inquiry instinct uh, for when you know you're making difficult decisions. So I'll just give one example. You know. Uh, in the context of Syria, we had many a debate about the wisdom of arming and training the Syrian rebels. Now, as you all know, there is a long history, not entirely a happy history, of the United States arming and training rebel groups around the world during the Cold War, you know, before mm -hmm. and after. Um, and you know, some of those lessons could be mislearned, as you said. Mm -hmm. Others could be properly learned, but Having that discussion and debate, and, and I, that's just one example, and there are many like it, without any historical frame of reference, to me is malpractice. So I, um, I found that aspect of my, um, of my education and training to be really useful. Valuable. Um, what about personal diplomacy? I'm sure in all of your roles you've had to employ it. Um, can you share a few experiences where all the tools are out there, but it's really the personal relationships um, and how that plays into the making of foreign policy? Yeah, well, I, I could give many examples, but I think that the, the, the richest set of examples come from my time at the UN, where uh, I spent more time with the ambassadors of the permanent five countries than I did with my husband or anybody in my family over that four and a half years. And that's the Russian, that's the Chinese, as well as the Brit and the French. And um, for better or for worse, you form very intense uh, relationships, hopefully productive ones. Um, and one of my most uh, complex but important relationships at the UN was with my Russian counterpart, um, then uh, Ambassador Vitaly Cherkin. And we had 
what I've publicly described as a robust love-hate relationship. <laughs> um, the hate part was self-evident. We argued, you know, bitterly in public uh, on all manner of issues, uh, and and sometimes with personal invective uh, thrown in more from him than by me, but he would probably say the opposite if he could. He unfortunately passed away uh, a couple of years ago. Um, but we also had enormous um, mutual respect. Um, he was a very smart guy. Uh, he was a fierce advocate for his country. He was funny as hell. Uh, and w when we were behind closed doors, you know, without cameras or the need to uh, posture, um, we could get a lot of stuff done. And we could um, probe where there might be areas for agreement that we could go back and try to convince our capitals to agree to. Um, and I, you know, he tried many times, I won't um, speak out of school on, on, on his behalf, but there were many occasions where on some of the toughest issues, um, he tried very hard to change uh, mm -hmm. his instructions mm -hmm. um, to, um, to lead the council to a, a better outcome. Mm -hmm. And many of those efforts came out of um, his understanding and, and the, the common ground that he and I were able to forge and that he was able to forge with other members of the Permanent Five. And so that's just one example of you know, where personal relationships really yeah. matter. Um, it you know, matter with friends, obviously, as well as with, yeah, um, right. with, with opponents. But um, you know, when I look back on my time at the UN, um, that relationship was in many ways um, the most consequential. And when I left the UN and the, the US mission threw me a going away party, I only asked one ambassador to speak. Huh. Uh, and that was Vitaly because, mostly because I knew he'd be funny as hell. Yeah. And, <laughs> and he would, I was giving him one last opportunity to get in his licks and it was, it was worth it. Um, last question on the personal career side is on mentorship, and um, if you can talk a little bit about the mentors or sponsors you've had along the way, and um, how you have attempted to play a mentoring or sponsoring role in your career. Well, I, I feel that I've been extraordinarily blessed. Um, the best and earliest mentors I had were my, my parents, mm -hmm. uh, who were both um, very successful, very hardworking, um, very dedicated um, public servants in their own way. My father uh, was a professor. He was uh, he worked at the World Bank as an as an acting ED at the World Bank. Uh, he ultimately was a governor of the Federal Reserve, but his whole uh, the bulk of his career was in uh, in public service. My mother never served in government, but spent uh, most of her career um, in, in higher education policy, and her uh, signature contribution was being instrumental in the creation of the Pell Grant program, mm -hmm. uh, which has obviously had enormous impact in terms of broadening access to higher education right. for lower-income Americans. And that this is a shorthand version, but they 
taught me many important lessons and raised me with you know, perspectives and, and values that have been indispensable in my, uh, in my development. And then I had extraordinary teachers in high school. Uh, and, um, and then I had mentors in my professional career, men and women, mm -hmm. Uh, who took an interest in me and helped me grow and develop. Madeleine Albright uh, is top of that list. Um, so are Tony Lake and Sandy Berger, who were um, national security advisors in the Clinton administration. Richard Clark, uh, the famous uh, counterterrorism right. and cyber security czar, was my very first boss in government. When I came to the NSC staff as a 28-year-old, he was the senior director, uh, and he was, um, he was wondering what he was supposed to do with me as somebody who'd never served in government and uh, you know, was about as wet behind the ears as it was possible to be. And he and Randy Beers yeah. um, taught me an enormous amount in a short period of time about how to be effective in the interagency. Um, and, and, you know, it taught me tricks that um, I don't think everybody gets taught, like how to dissect the national security budget and find money for things that you that other people don't even know exist because they don't know how the budget yeah, works. Right. So that when you need something, when you need to to fund a program that everybody says there's no money for, you know how to go and vacuum up money uh, within the you know unallocated balances mm -hmm. to do stuff that you want to get done. So I had, um, I've been blessed every step of the way uh, by extraordinary mentors. And I have tried very hard to, to give that back, um, particularly as I became more senior mm -hmm. and particularly as I you know, was leading a mission at the UN or leading the National Security Council team. Um, and I've tried not only to be able to be supportive and um, helpful to men and women who served on my team while I was in government, but uh, I, to this day, you know, my door is open to any of those um, colleagues and, and friends that, that I can be helpful to who I've been privileged to, to serve with. We're going to close out on a few um, of the final substantive questions folks had. Um, one actually it turns out relates a little bit to your your dad's expertise, which is essentially that on economics. Well, it. this is the question, which is, um, do we have enough economic know-how inside our national security structure and talent pool to execute the kind of strategies we need for the future? Probably not. Uh, we obviously have some. Uh, you know, we have. And we have experts in the, in the State Department who mm -hmm. you know, are economic officers and who um, know those issues, uh, and that's, their, and that's what they do and, on a daily right. basis. In the, in the White House, um, for many years, we've had uh, a quasi-merger of the National Economic Council staff and the National Security staff in the international realm, and that, um, that arrangement, I think, has served both the NEC and the NSC well. Um, we tried very hard, and, and I hope that this is still happening, to uh, 
involve the expertise at Commerce and Treasury and USTR uh, and, and other agencies in those aspects of national security decision making where you know, without them we'd be flying partially blind. But I do think there's still a degree of um, uh, siloing among those disciplines that is um, that's suboptimal. And when, you know, when I think about those areas where I wish my, um, my own knowledge and experience were deeper, and you know, we talked about history and that was mm -hmm. used, so I was good on that, but I wasn't so good on, uh, on the economic side. I took economics courses in, uh, in college and graduate school, but I, I didn't have the, um, the depth of knowledge that I think would be useful. Another area where I'm uh, under-equipped and, and wish I had more um, knowledge and experience, and again, like economics, an area where I think we need to integrate more into national security decision-making is in knowledge of technology. Right. Um, and you know, all forms, digital, bio, uh, artificial intelligence, et cetera. These are all areas where that's where the puck is going. Yes. Uh, and, and many of the more, particularly the more senior um, decision makers are maybe as ignorant as I am. Um, we have uh, two remaining questions. One is very specific to Syria. I'm going to ask it because I know a lot of people are interested in this topic. Um, what are your thoughts on how we move forward in Syria? What's the the best case scenario you can spell out where the U.S. can help bring uh, some sort of conclusion to the civil war there? Well, in the first instance, I regret that the president announced an abrupt uh, withdrawal of the U.S. military presence in Syria. Now, I guess we're keeping 400. Mm -hmm. Uh, of the 2,000 and splitting them between the North and the South, so it'll be a very modest presence on the ground. I'm certainly not in favor of an indefinite U.S. military presence in Syria, but I think as we've learned the hard way uh, in Iraq and elsewhere that um, there's no such thing as mission accomplished when it comes to dealing with um, resilient, committed terrorist organizations. And so uh, I would prefer that we took a somewhat gradu more gradual and longer view uh, of our presence there, both for counterterrorism purposes, but also, frankly, uh, to give us more of a hand, both in um, the potential for contributing to reconstruction in the liberated areas, but also for having some um, greater heft in our ability to, to conduct diplomacy that might address the underlying conflict there. I also worry enormously about what our drawdown will mean for the Kurds, despite um, right. assurances that we'll um, give them their due. I'm quite skeptical of that. But in terms of the, Syri the Syrian conflict itself, um, there is no diplomacy that, that I can detect um, that is dealing with the root causes of the conflict and the future um, of, uh, of the Syrian uh, government. You know, the, 
Assad seems to be increasingly well entrenched, uh, protected by Russia, uh, and yet you know he's governing a, a subset of what was once Syria, and um, we have advanced none of our interests uh, in a political outcome that would be more stable uh, and more beneficial. And it seems like it's always been a hugely intractable challenge. But it seems like, and not to denigrate the efforts of Ambassador Jeffrey, who I have great respect for, but it doesn't seem that we are doing any of the things that might be done to try to create openings to affect the future course of and, events. And in, if I can make sure I understand that with the priority of which would be around a strong effort around diplomacy. Is that what diplomacy, I'm understanding? Yeah. Yes. I'm, I'm talking about diplomacy, yeah. but I'm also talking about you know, uh, using what influence and leverage we might have right. uh, to some effect. You know, somebody is going to have to rebuild and reconstruct those parts of Syria that have been utterly destroyed. The Syrians can't do that by themselves. The Russians are not going to do that. The Iranians are sure as hell not going to do that. So who's going to do that? Right. And what do the people who are putting those resources in, is it going to be the Gulf? Is it going to be you know, Europe? Is it going to be the United States? What do we get for it in terms of an outcome in Damascus that is better than the status quo? These are the kinds of questions that, you know, that, that at least from the outside, it's not obvious that we're wrestling with. Right. So the last question is, as all the, these usually are, uh, the most aspirational. Um, it's 2020. Somehow you are yet another candidate for president. Um, on the Democratic side, you become president. You turn to your national security advisor. Okay. What are your top three priorities? What are your top three priorities for statecraft that you want to pass on to your administration in 2020? Well, I think the most urgent will be to convey to our allies and friends around the world that we are prepared to lead again in a way that they can count on and that is reliable, predictable, and respected. And there's a whole lot of things that fall into that bucket, but that's, to me, job one. Uh, I would also, I mean, again, and I'm not talking about issues in the world, but mm -hmm. the the work of statecraft, reinvesting in restoring competence and depth to the State Department um, has got to be an urgent priority. And I would uh, advise the new president and, um, to seek from Congress authority, um, extraordinary authority to bring back um, Departed state, departed and retired State Department mm. talent, um, without the bureaucratic BS that that usually entails. Right. Um, so there's a very simple, swift way to reincorporate those who have left who may wish to come back um, at the level they were at, you mm -hmm. know, with, without losing their, the, the, their retirement benefits and all that sort of. We're going to have to find some extraordinary ways uh, to try to re. Um, recoup that talent. Um, and I guess thirdly, I would go out of my way to reinvest in repairing our alliance relationships and, and partnerships and 
reestablishing our moral authority. It, that relates to the first point mm -hmm. I made. But, um, you know, I don't think we get another bite at this apple, frankly, to uh, convince our allies and, and friends that, that we are a leader that they want to hitch their wagons to. Um, if, we, if we don't manage to do that in two years' time, I think um, that train will have left the station. Ambassador Rice, you have been incredibly generous with your time today. We have learned a great deal, both about you and about the world. I want to thank you for taking your time to share your wisdom. Please join me in a round of applause for Ambassador Rice. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time.